you found a message that was delivered at Living Streams Community Church in McCordsville, Indiana. We are praying the time you invest hearing God's Word encourages you in your walk with Jesus and inspires you to share Him with others. If you want to learn more about us or send us a prayer request, visit our website, livingstreamscc.org. Thank you for listening. Turn your Bibles to Hosea. Um, you can you can find him somewhere in the middle after the big prophets, and you'll find Daniel, and then you'll find Hosea. And we were just started a series called Amazing Love, working our way uh, through this this book that uh, we want to learn more about the love God has for us. So, um, you know, I, I confess to you this morning that I am not much of a poetry guy. Uh, you know, when I read poetry, it, it's it, it's full of emotion. And it just seems like, you know, I'm always missing something important, you know, when I'm reading it. And then depending on the kind of poetry you're reading, there's, there's a rhythm, you know, to, to get. And, you know, when you can't find the rhythm to a poem and you're reading along, it's kind of like you're singing a song and you can't find the, the beat when you're trying to clap to it, you know. And it kind of ruins the song, you know, for, for you and, and everybody else around you, right? Um, so poetry is hard when you try to read, read it like prose. So I've never been much of a poetry guy. But listen, when you can find the rhythm and you can feel or sense the emotions that are coming out of the poetry, uh, it can be a very powerful way to communicate to us. Um, so I wanted to show you an example of that. So here's another video. You can turn the sound back on to the outside world. I thought that was filmed on location in Gatlinburg. What do you guys think? <laughs> Elizabeth, Elizabeth Barrett Browning. That was her most famous poem, How Do I Love Thee, written to her then fiancé, uh, Robert. Uh, she got married to him when she was 40 years old, and it took that long because she had an overprotective, disapproving dad. And uh, so she got married in secret, and, the, and they ran off to Italy, never saw dad again. And they had a son. And then uh, she died 15 years later in Robert's arms. So her poem there is, a mar- is talking about the myriad of ways that um, love goes from one person to another, specifically her love for Robert. So you can hear some strength in there, some, some passion. You can hear some like commitment and forever in there. There's pure and, and good, all of that stuff in that short little poem. Uh, did you know that God is a poet? Did you know that? 8,600 verses in the Bible are poetry. And so that means a little more than 25% of the Bible is poems. And so we would do well to learn to read it and to get better at taking in what God is saying, trying to hear his heartbeat for us in there. And to hear and listen to the truth that he communicates in such a way that only poetry can do. So here in Hosea chapter 2 and 3, I'm praying that we can get a deeper understanding of the ways God is loving us and telling us about it through this prophet that we don't read all too often. So let's pray and ask God to help us get there. Father in heaven, we thank you today for this moment this moment of time with you and together in your word uh, to listen and uh, to think about how you love us and the the amazing love that gets poured out on us um, every single day. Uh, 
And so, Lord, I know that uh, the words that we read in this book are hard to understand sometimes and, and they're hard to apply to our lives. But I pray that your Holy Spirit would help us today receive what's in here and take it to heart, literally, and be able to live it out in our lives by the power of your Holy Spirit. I pray for those who need to hear your voice today, that they would have ears to hear. I pray for those that need to turn to you, that need to obey you today, that they would have willing hearts and willing feet. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're in chapter 2, but remember, verse 1 kind of seemed to go well with chapter 1. And so that just... A good place to remind you that the chapter and verse distinctions in the Bible are not divinely inspired. And so sometimes it's good just to get them out of the way so you can kind of see how it's put together a little bit better. Um, But here in uh, chapter 2, verses 2 to 13, we can understand God's love purposes the pain in our lives. So I'm going to start with verses 2 to 7. Plead with your mother. Plead, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. That she put away her whoring from her face, and her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked, and make her as in the day she was born, and make her like a wilderness, and make her like a parched land, and kill her with thirst. Upon her children also I will have no mercy, because they are children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully, for she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Therefore, I will hedge up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them, and she shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. So the focus of this poetry here, uh, as opposed to chapter 1, it it turns from the kids to the mother Israel. And so as guys continue to use this illustration of Hosea's family to show his people how his people are treating him in their relationship. And so we're reading in here some some different kinds of pain, different kinds of pain that are described. And in verse 2, it starts off with the pain of truth. Okay, the pain of truth. It says, plead with your mother. <laughs> Speaking to the kids, plead with your mother. Plead because we're still married, but in reality she's not acting like my wife, and so I cannot be her husband. Now other versions start verse 2 with the word rebuke instead of the word plead. And so that's the pleading that we're hearing here, that we're talking about, is like the pleading that you would have an attorney do in court for you. You know, he's he's making your case. And so God is not groveling here. He's making his case for Israel to turn from the idolatry that they've been practicing, giving their hearts to other gods as uh, described as adultery in a marriage, uh, because that's the only way you could describe what they're doing. So that's the pain of truth. It's very plain. Now, how should such a sin against a a holy, almighty God be punished? Verses 3 and 4, they they provide another kind of pain. It's the pain of consequences. He says, she will be humbled. She will be alone. 
She will be put in a place where she's unable to provide for her basic needs. And her children will lose God's compassion because they were born in unfaithfulness to him. And then verse 5 goes back to the pain of the truth, back to uh, God making his case. Israel deliberately pursued other gods in a most shameful and cheapening way. Okay, what was her motive to do this, to, to be with other lovers, to go after other gods? It was bread, water, wool, flax, oil, and drink. The material pleasures of life. Her whole reason for living had become to try to have her best life now. Now, during Hosea's writings, the northern kingdom of Israel was experiencing a season of prosperity. They had had some military successes, and so that meant the spoils of war, and so that was then feeding this appetite for more, more affluence, more prosperity. And you know, prosperity can be a strong motive for going after things that we want other than the way to get things for our lives through our provider, our Heavenly Father. So verse 6 then brings up a new kind of pain. It's the pain of discipline. God says, I'm going to frustrate her efforts. You know, everything she tries, I'm going to, I'm going to stop her from doing it. So Israel's not going to be able to chase down her lovers. So he's going to work against what she's trying to do to be prosperous. So she's going to be swimming upstream against the current of God. That's a strong current. <laughs> everything she tries to do is going to end in failure. Are you familiar with any of these kinds of pain in your life? The pain of truth or consequences or discipline? I am. You know, I could say to you this morning that I would call myself a card-carrying pain avoider. I've been a pain avoider my whole life. Back in high school, you know, I was a competitive swimmer. And I loved to swim, enjoyed that, practiced hard, did all that stuff. But I chose to be a sprinter because the races were shorter and that meant less pain. That's the truth. When I was in college and the courses were starting up new semester, I'd get all my course syllabuses and I'd study those first. And I'd say, okay, what do I not have to do in order to reduce the pain of this class and still survive? I did that. When I got out from under my parents' roof and I started making my own dental appointments, I stopped making them. <laughs> Some of you maybe have done that too. I avoided painful chores, painful habits, painful conversations, painful people, painful preaching, giving it and receiving it. I've avoided all of that. Now the problem with trying to be a pain avoider is that God uses pain. He uses pain in our life to turn our hearts toward him and to change our hearts to be like him. He uses it. He purposes the pain. In verse 7, at the end of it, it's what God is wanting to hear his wife say, I will go and return to my first husband because it was better for me then than it is now. That's exactly what the prodigal son said. Remember that story? He's in a faraway land. He's left home, said, give me my share of the inheritance. Dad, I wish you were dead. You know, and goes and he spends it all and he ends up feeding the pigs and the pods are looking good. He's hungry and he's thinking, I was better off at home. Even the servants at home had plenty to eat. And he goes home. He turns and he goes home. 
Now, that's a self-motivated reason to go home, to turn toward home. You know, it's a pain avoidance reason to go home, but it's a reason. It got him moving in the right direction. You know, but when he saw his father, that's when his heart broke. That's when his heart broke. And that's the fourth kind of pain that comes out of this poetry um, from, uh, in these verses. So, so from verses 8 to 13, we start to hear God speak things from his perspective. We start to hear God speak about his pain, his broken heart. When, when uh, we see, it's, it's, it's called pain from perspective, from his perspective, when we see how our sin hurts our God. So let's read that. 8 to 13. <clears throat> And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time, and my wine in its season, and I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. And I will lay waste her vines and fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages, which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals, when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry, and went after uh, her lovers and forgot me declares the Lord. (laughs) So you can hear in those verses, you can hear God's anger, you can hear God's broken heart, you can hear the anguish that he has over his wife pursuing other lovers. You can hear that. She didn't know it was me. She didn't know I was the one giving her all of these things, all of this material pleasure for life, and then she went and she took what I gave her and she gave it to that other guy, Baal broken heart verse 11 i'm gonna stop all of her fun all of those religious practices she thinks she's playing me for the fool still going through the motions of faithful worship to me but her heart's not in it it's somewhere else it's with someone else or something else Verse 12, I'm going to wipe out all her vines and gardens, all of her accumulations that she said are my wages that come from those other lovers. Those other guys, they're all going to be useless to her and there's just going to be food for wild animals. Verse 13, I'll punish her for taking part in the celebrations of Baal, for getting all dressed up for him, for offering sacrifices to him and forgetting all about me. That's God sharing the pain of his heart due to their sins. That's God's perspective. Now, in reality, there is no way to avoid pain in our life. It's just, there's just no way to do it. It's going to find you one way or another because our world is fallen and it can't get up. So we're going to, we're going to end up having some pain. We bring pain on ourselves and God brings us pain. But no matter how we find it in our life, I can tell you for sure, it is one of the ways that God loves you that he wants to use that pain. He wants to purpose that pain to turn your heart back toward him and to grow you in him. Those are his purposes. And so listen, when we're getting the pain of truth, when we're getting that truth from the Bible when we're reading it, or when it's being preached and you're getting it, or when you're getting it from another believer, 
and you're hearing this and it doesn't it doesn't sound good the question is what do i need to hear here it is as you start to as you start to think and get defensive and want to argue and defend yourself it's like you know what i just need to stop i just need to listen i need to see if god is speaking truth to me what does he want me to hear through this word that's how you respond to the pain of truth is life an uphill battle right now I mean, does it feel like you're swimming against the current and God's the current? That's the pain of discipline. You know, do you, do you cooperate with that? Because God wants to use it. He wants to grow you. You can read Hebrews chapter 12 and find out all about God's discipline, how he treats us as you know, sons and daughters when he does that to us. It's his love coming to us. He's trying to change us. There's a peaceful harvest of righteousness if we would endure his discipline. But are we cooperating with him or are we fighting it? And we're just trying to get out from under the pain. And we're just trying to, to stop the pain. We have an opioid epidemic in our country because we don't like pain. Is that us with God? We're just diving into things to, to, to kill the pain? Or are we cooperating? Is there pain from consequences right now? You know, and when that happens, you know, things are done. And, and so then there's, a, there's an opportunity right there. And it's like, I can get mad at God, I can blame God, or I can say, I'm in this mess because of me. What does God want to do to get, you know, me out of this? How do I deal with these consequences? And that's huge in, a, in our growing relationship with Him. Responding to pain is so difficult. A lot of the time it is not clear what God is saying and, or what God is doing, what is his purpose. But listen, we can respond in all the right ways that he wants us to, but it won't have much benefit for our life with God unless we get the pain of perspective, the pain of seeing it, our life from him. So we can hear and we can hear the truth and we can respond to it. And we can persevere through the discipline and grow by it. We can take responsibility for our consequences. But without the pain of perspective, we'll only turn back toward God uh, because it's better for us. Because it's less pain. And our life with God really won't change. And we'll be on this merry-go-round and we'll be stuck. The Israelites did not see things like God did. <laughs> they did not see it. I mean, they thought they were being faithful to him. By practicing the Sabbath, by celebrating God's feast that he had given them. They were still doing that. You could hear that. God said he was going to stop all that nonsense. Because it was nonsense because their heart wasn't in it. They were still doing it. They were still practicing the Passover, taking the lamb to the temple, having a sacrifice for the forgiveness of their sins. They were still doing all that, thinking, I'm being a good Israelite. I'm following God's law. But they had added to their lives this other thing over here um, where they go to this guy named Baal and they do all kinds of perverse things in the temple because they want material blessings in their lives. I mean, everybody's doing it. It must be okay. But it wasn't okay. They didn't have God's perspective. They didn't know. They couldn't see. They were blinded because of their affluence. We have got to pay attention to this because we live in the most prosperous country in the world. It is the water that we swim in. It is the air that we breathe. We have got to listen to this. Most of us live like kings and queens, as my wife Lori likes to remind me. (laughs) We live like kings and queens. So listen, chances are good. We have created an idol in our life. That we are sacrificing for. I mean, chances are really good that that is there. But we think 
because we're under grace, because we practice going to church, going to small group, serving a little bit, giving a little bit, showing some mercy here and there. We think that God is happy with our relationship with him. We need the pain of perspective. We need to see where we're taking the things he has given them, he has given to us, and we're sacrificing them for the other things in our life, for the material pleasures of this life, the prosperity that we so easily have at our fingertips. We need to see where we're doing that because we're doing it. We need to see where our good works are just filthy rags to him because we're doing them to make ourselves feel better instead of in honor of him. We need to see that. We need to see when we gather for worship and we sing our songs, which sound great, but our hearts are somewhere else. We need to see that because he sees that. We need to see what what we need to understand is that God cannot be a spoke on the wheel of our life. He must be at the center. He must be about every area of our lives. He must be about our work. He must be about our school. He must be about what we do here. He must be about our neighbors. He must be right in the center of all of that. He is God. He's got to be at the center of our calendar. He's got to be at the center of our checkbook. He cannot be anywhere else. Or He is not our God. We need to see. We need to see if we are living this hybrid version of Christianity so we can be relevant to the world, which really all that does is makes us look like them. And the only difference is they're not here. Can we see it? God, we need your perspective. We need it. Give it to us, Lord. Pain is painful. It's painful. And pain avoiders, they're looking for a way out of this. You know, what time is it? But God is looking for repentance. A turning back toward Him. Seeing our lives from His perspective. This love is not a cheap love. It is so expensive and so amazing. And we cheapen it when we don't look at our lives like he looks at our lives. So I say, let his purposes come to pass in your life. It's one of the ways he's trying to love you. But it's not the only way. Not the only way. Verses 14 to 23, God shows us another way. He paints a picture. Paints a picture. Let me read those verses. Verses 14 to 23. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there shall she... There she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and I no, lo- no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. 
And I will make for them a covenant on the day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in the faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord, I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth and the earth shall answer the grain and the wine and the oil and they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land and I will have mercy on no mercy and I will say to not my people, you are my people and he shall say, you are my God. That is a beautiful picture, isn't it? I mean, it is, it is beautiful. Now, for Old Testament folks, that is a, a picture of a new covenant, a New Testament kind of a life. You know, where, where God is the husband and Israel is, again, the, the faithful wife. For New Testament folks, there should be some things in there that are familiar to us. Things that we can taste in our life right now. But it's a picture that has not been fully revealed just yet. When was the last time you took a stroll around an art museum? It's been a few years uh, for me. And I don't think too many do that too often. But since that's the case, I think we have a pretty superficial relationship with art. You know? <laughs> right? Um, you know, when we go up to the picture, we go, wow, that's pretty cool. And then we go to the next picture. You know, kind of like that, superficial. Uh, but there is like classes you can take. In art appreciation. Did you know that? Yeah, you you think it's easy. (laughs) But it's a lot more involved. So I'm going to give you a class in art appreciation right now. It's a one-on-one class. Don't worry. And I can pass everybody. It's okay. No no final exam. No part of the syllabus you have to ignore. This is a one-on-one guide. It's just four things. Look, identify, think, and enjoy. That's it. All right. Okay. So here we go. First, got to look at this painting that God has painted. What is this? Is it a nature scene? Is it a portrait? Is it an abstract? Is it reality? What are we looking at here? What's in this picture? Well, God's painted this picture through Hosea, and he starts with a picture of love. He's wooing Israel. He says he's going to speak tenderly to her, going to woo her back into his arms when she's in the wilderness. Picture of love. It's also a picture of hope. God was going to give back everything he took from her, all the vineyards and everything. And then he says he would change the valley of Achor. Now, that valley of Achor is a kind of an interesting valley. It's also called the valley of trouble. And you can read about it in Joshua 6 and 7. That's where Achan sinned, where he went and they plundered. Uh, they went and they beat up some, uh, the Canaanites and he took some of the plunder that belonged to the Lord. And that got them all in trouble. So it became the valley of trouble. Now, that valley, the valley was at the door of the promised land. I mean, Israelites were getting ready to enter the promised land and and where they were doing that was now called the Valley of Trouble. And so like that Jezreel Valley that was, you know, last week where, you know, it in their lives in the history of Israel, it was like this iconic, uh, you know, thing that they they saw that this was this violent act of their king who murdered all these people um, and and God was going to redeem that in their history. He was going to redeem the Valley of Trouble in the Israelites' history. He was going to change it. In the valley of trouble, he's going to put a door of hope. 
Uh, so it's going to get a whole new, whole new picture there. So there's a picture of love, picture of hope. We have a picture of a relationship here in, in, this, in this thing. The children of Israel are going to call God my husband and no longer call him my Baal. My Baal. So uh, the Hebrew word for husband and the Hebrew word for Baal were kind of very similar. And so over the years, remember this has happened over like 800 years, they fused those two names together and they were calling God the same, the, the same as they were calling Baal. And so really what they were doing was they were bringing down God to the level of all the other gods. And that to them wasn't a big deal, but to God it's a, it's a big deal. He made, he, he's serious about names. He's serious about that. So here he's saying he's going to take that Baal right out of their mouth. They're never going to speak it again. They're going to call him Yahweh. And uh, they're going to be acting as his wife and he their husband. So they're going to be looking to him alone for protection and provision, respecting his position in their life. Um, So this is a picture of promise. And God is making a new covenant with them and all creation. So he's going to make all things new. And there is a picture of peace. In here, God's going to make war and violence a thing of the past. It's just, it's just not going to be a part of their lives anymore. This is a picture of forever. He says he will betroth himself to his people with righteousness, justice, committed love, and faithfulness permanently. So a picture of forever. It's a picture of forgiveness. That word betroth is a word that you would use at the beginning of a marriage, not at the beginning of a remarriage. And so what God is saying is, I'm wiping the slate clean. I'm forgiving the sins. I'm, re- I'm removing them as far as the east and the- is from the west. The sins of your past, Israel, they will not hang over, you, hang over you in this new relationship. We're starting from the ground up. This is no remodel. This is a raise and start again. Yeah, that's amazing. Picture of intimacy here. That they would know God like never before. And it's a picture of identity. All the children of Hosea are getting new names. Or their names mean something different. Jezreel's name, you know, remember it was a reminder of that valley. Now it was going to be a reminder of the sovereignty of God and how he is over creation. And he blesses creation and it would bless the people. And that he was going to sow his people back into the land. That's what Jezreel's name was going to mean from then on out. That's nice. No mercy was going to be called mercy. Not my people was going to be called my people. So picture of identity. Lots in this picture here. Did you know all that was there? Well, see, you got to stop and you got to look at it. So you're not even getting that. This is like 101, people. Come on. Let's look at it. We got love. We got hope. We got relationship, promise, peace, forever, forgiveness, intimacy, and identity. Oh, that's a lot to look at. You take it home. You can look at it. After you looked at it, then it's good to identify the artist. You know, because sometimes that helps you appreciate it more. So here, here's a picture. I'm going to show you a picture. Could you throw that up there? All right, that's a picture of Jesus. I think it's a pretty good picture. You might have seen it before. It's kind of popular. I mean, you look at some of the detail there. Pretty, pretty amazing. Um, now, that was painted by an eight-year-old girl after she had visions of Jesus. I think she appreciated it a little bit more, doesn't it? I don't know if I have any pictures that I made when I was eight years old, but I promise you it didn't look anything like that so we have god as our artist here in hosea god is painting this picture i mean think about it we have gone from this heart-wrenching pain due to israel's unfaithfulness to complete and to the complete and utter surprise of restoration of, of a complete reversal i mean so after all the yuck god is not giving up on his marriage he's going to keep his marriage vows he's going to be pursuing he's going to be he's going to be wooing 
He's going to be making new promises and he's going to do all that's necessary to make that kind of relationship a forever relationship. He's making it happen. It's all on him. This is creator God saying this. This is the almighty God, the holy one. You know, the one who's full of justice and mercy and righteousness and love. He is that. When he says it, it means he's going to do it. I love uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.24. It says, he who calls you is faithful and he will surely do it. One of my favorite verses right now. So that's the artist. That's who painted this picture. Now, we've got a picture. We know the artist. We've got to think about the meaning. Think about it a little bit. I mean, this isn't just a picture of God and his people Israel. This is a picture of God and his church. Okay, so, you know, since we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, guess what? We've all been born into the valley of trouble. We've all been born into the valley of trouble, um, that door outside the promised land. But God is making a way. He's making a way for people to go through a door into the promised land to do life with him forever. He's making the way. He put a door in the valley of trouble called the door of hope. What is the door for? (laughs) Walk on through. And then here, the last part of the art art appreciation is just to appreciate it, to enjoy the art, to marvel at it, to think about the message that has been sent by this painting. The divine painter has painted a picture of our future with him as a way to love us. Can you see yourself in the picture? Can you see yourself in the picture? Can you hear God wooing you? Can you see the door of hope? Has he put a door of hope right in front of you in your valley of trouble? And he's beckoning you to walk through that door? Has your life with him banked on a new promise? Has nothing to do with you and everything to do with him? Peace comes. Intimacy with him comes. A relationship. A new identity. You get a new name. You'll find out what it is on a white stone when you get to see him. When you look at this picture, are you confident that it's a picture of your future with God? He's given it to us as a way to love us. Now, chapter 3 takes us back into Hosea's prayer closet, and God speaks to him again. It's only five verses, but listen, these five verses make makes it possible to go from the pain in chapter 2 to the picture of chapter 2. These five verses, God loves us as he pays the price for us. So let's read that. So, And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and lethage of barley. And I said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. 
For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without a king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. So God tells Hosea to go again and love an adulterous woman, which we are believing, assuming that's Gomer, his, his wife. And so this illustration, God is continuing to use it, but this time he's sort of changing it, and he's not really saying this illustration is about how the people are being being adulterers to me. What he's saying is this is how how he's going to respond to what they've done. So Hosea's actions are more about him now. Hosea, go get your bride. Even though she's... She's uh, being unfaithful to other men, even though she's out there doing that. Go get her. This is just like how the Lord is going to love Israel. Even though she's unfaithful to him with other gods and giving herself to the enjoyment of, lo- of a life of raisin cakes, which is apparently a delicacy back in the day. Um, so even though that's happening, I'm going to love him. That's what God's saying. So verse 2 tells us how Hosea uh, did what God wanted him to do. He goes and he gets Gomer who's enslaved now in prostitution somehow. And so somebody had become her owner, and she was being used to make money for somebody else. So he had to go out, and he had to get her, and he had to pay a price to get her back. And so Hosea pays 15 shekels of silver and some barley, which is not a very high price, but all that tells us is how much value her masters placed on Gomer's life. Not very much. Now, this is how you go from that rocky relationship of pain at the beginning of chapter 2 to this beautiful picture of faithful united forever at the end of chapter 2. Somebody has to pay a price for that to happen. And God painted it in his picture. He he painted it in the picture. I just didn't want to tell you about it till now. I try not to tell you about it. I was hinting at it, but I was trying not to tell you. Did you know it was in there? Could you? It's, It's all about that betrothal thing. Okay, so, so he said he painted himself as betrothing himself to Israel. Now, in ancient Israel, uh, when you betrothed yourself as the groom, you went to the parents of the bride-to-be and you paid a bride price so that, so that you could have her. And so the price that God is paying was righteousness, justice, steadfast love, and mercy. And so when you're a groom and you pay the bride price, what you end up doing is you're giving that to your wife. She ends up, that means that is her dowry. It costs him that, and it goes to her. That price is found in Jesus Christ. And that has come to us through him. (laughs) That is so cool. So, just like Hosea went and paid the necessary price to free his wife from prostitution, God sent his son to pay the necessary price to free us from our sin. And he did that not when we were looking for it, not when we had turned toward home, um, not when we even wanted him. We were neck deep in our sin, maybe underwater in our sin when this happened. Romans 5, 8 says, this is how God shows his love for us in this. Christ Jesus died for us while we were still sinners. A price has been paid for us to free us from our sins. How now shall we live? How now shall we live? The rest of this chapter tells us. Hosea calls Gomer to live in many days in faithfulness with him and he to her. Not just because that's the way it ought to be, 
But because Israel needed to leave behind the old life. They need to leave behind the things that were leading her into sin before. And there's kind of a list of them. Your leadership was no good. Remember all those dumb kings, you know, not many of them. Not many of them were doing what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And so he's like, you need to live without them. I need to be your leader right now. Uh, No more uh, sacrifices and offerings to other gods. No more pillars in the land of perversion where you go and sacrifice to other gods and do stuff you shouldn't be doing. No more of that. No more using the things of God like the ephod that that the high priests were when he went to the temple. No more going and touching that going, I need some good luck. I'm going to to touch that and go out, you know. That's what what was going on. No more of that. This is not superstition. No more household gods. No more putting images in your home and bowing down to them asking for blessing. No more of that. No more of that. That is all about the old life. That is about life before the price was paid. Now you've been redeemed. Leave that behind. Leave all that old junk behind and do everything you can to live in the new life. So purge and purify. Purge and purify. Now life's all about seeking the Lord. It's all about coming under the reign of King David. Now that is a significant statement for the northern kingdom of Israel. Remember, that's who this book is. That's the focus judgment of this book is to the northern kingdom of Israel. Well, a couple hundred years ago, they rebelled against David's leadership. So a couple hundred years, they had their own king, had their own kingdom. But see, they had to go back under David because it was out of David's line that there there was going to be another king that was going to come and he was going to be full of righteousness and justice and he was going to reign forever, namely Jesus. Jesus is the king. He's in David's line. You've got to come under him to get in the new promise. King of kings, Lord of lords, can you understand what's happening here? Can you see it? The way that God has loved us, he has paid a price for us. And we've got to get this. He does not just overlook our sins. He does not just turn the other way and just say, ah, it's okay. He cannot do that because he is perfect and he is just. He is perfectly just. I mean, what judge would we say is a good judge who was standing there in the courtroom, has the murderer right there and just says, ah, you can leave. We'd say, get rid of that guy. (laughs) Why do we do that with God? He's the perfect judge. Perfectly just. So he sees it all. He sees our slavery. He sees our temptations. He sees us walking away from him. He sees all of that. And still he said to his only son, go. You go pay the price for Greg. You go pay the price for Joyce. You go pay the price for Josh, for Lori, for Jenny, for Butch. You go pay the price for them. I know it's a high price, but that's what they're worth to me. I love them. How now shall we live? How now shall we live? Colossians 3, 1 to 10. Listen to this. Since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. For you died to this life and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all his glory. So put to death the sinful, earthly things lurking within you. Have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires. Don't be greedy, for a greedy person is an idolater 
worshiping the things of this world. Because of these sins, the anger of God is coming. You used to do these things when you were in your former life and you were a part of this world. But now is the time to get rid of anger, rage, malicious behavior, slander, and dirty language. Don't lie to each other, for you have stripped off the old sinful nature and all its wicked deeds. Put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your Creator and become like That's how we need to live. Throwing out the old, bringing in the new, living in the new. So what needs to go? What needs to go in your life? What is it that's in your life that causes you to stumble, that makes you, uh, tempts you and, and causes you to walk away from God? I mean, what technology is it? What entertainment is it? What hobby is it? And what dream? What is it? It's not worth it. Purge it. What causes you to be tempted? What kind of succulent raisin cakes are you craving? Instead of what the food Jesus craved, which was to do the will of him who sent me. I wonder if raisin cakes is like fruit cake. If you can find the answer to any of those questions... You're going to be faced with a choice. You're going to feel a resistance to letting that stuff go. Because it's enjoyable. It's good. It's part of what we define as the good life. And you'll have that resistance. And you may even find yourself you know, making excuses to hold on to it. Well, it's okay. It doesn't do that much damage. But I just got to say, you can't have it both ways. Believe the words of your Savior who said anybody who wants to save his life is going to lose it. But anyone who gives up his life for my sake, not for my sake, for my sake, will save it. Let's have our worship team come back up. How do I love thee? Let me count the ways. That's all I know of the poem. So God's love. He is purposing the pain in our lives. What's he doing in yours today? What is he doing with the pain in your life today? Is is it a call to turn back to him? Is it a call to grow in him, to persevere through it? Ask God for his perspective in all of that. Ask him for that. Um, Listen, the answers may be painful, but the harvest is beautiful. So ask him. There's more love, more power, more of him in your life. God loves us by painting us a picture of our future with him. Are you in that picture? Are you in the picture? This valley of trouble that we're walking around in, I'm telling you, the, the Lord has placed a door of hope. In that valley of trouble. Is God calling you to walk through that door today? The door is Jesus. And he's calling. He's beckoning. Shane and I really didn't talk much about this service today. And I heard all of these things in the songs that we sang today. I'm telling you, the Lord's doing something here this morning. He's bringing it all together. He's brought you here. What's he calling you to do? What kind of step of faith do you need to take in him? 
And then God loves us by paying the price, calling us to live a life of faithfulness. He's even given us his Holy Spirit to empower us to live that life. But you know what the Holy Spirit will not do? He will not force us to loosen our grip on our life. And the thing is, you can't follow Jesus if your hands are full. Because they have to be free to pick up his cross. Are your hands free this morning? Let's stand and we'll sing about this amazing love. And you can respond to what God is doing. A price has been paid. How should we live in light of God's amazing love? Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, it is good to hear from your word to be able to look at such a ancient book and see how it touches our lives today. And so we pray as we've heard from you that we can respond in ways that would be pleasing to your heart. That as we go from this place, that our lives would rise up to you as that pleasing aroma. As we're sizzling for Jesus in the world. I pray, God, for much grace upon us today as we're living in the valley of trouble and there's pain on a lot of different sides of our lives. I pray for grace that you just pour it out, overflowing in our life. Where there's hurting hearts or bodies or dashed dreams and hopes. Resurrect them, Lord. Give them back. Help us see the door of hope that we've got in front of us to, to walk through that and live with you in that newness of life. We thank you for the picture of our future with you, the promises that have made there, and the promise keeper who's made them. Help us cling to it, Lord, as we continue to be faithful day by day. Pray for those who don't know you, Father, who are looking at that picture and it's just foreign. They have no idea what it means. I pray that you'd continue to woo them. Woo them into your arms, Lord. Give them faith to see Jesus for who he is and what he's done for them. And we thank you, God, for paying the price for us. Thank you. We owe it all to you. We owe you everything, our lives. Teach us to give that, give our lives to you daily, Lord. To walk in a fresh surrender. And then use us. Use us out there to shine your light. To love people. To tell them about Christ. And to bring glory and honor to you. Do it right here. He who calls you is faithful and he will surely do it. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.